The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Caroline Stanbury, star of The Real Housewives of Dubai, entrepreneur, wife, and mother of three, once divorced and now remarried to a much younger man, uncut and uncensored with Caroline Stanbury follows me as I live my life unapologetically and shows you that there is life after 40. I'm here to let you know that not only is there a life after divorce, but you have the power to make it your best one yet, just like I did. So buckle up and join me for the wild ride. So welcome back to another episode of Uncut and Uncensored with Caroline Stanbury. And today I'm very excited because I wish I'd had one of you. She is known as your rich best friend, CEO and founder, Vivian Tu. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming on. Actually, I think this is so important. I know that you've built such an amazing community of over like 6 million people now who follow you for your advice. But I actually, I'm someone that actually would have needed you or needs you. I don't understand anything. And I wish I knew more (laughs) about finances and investing. And I'm learning. Actually, I think getting divorced forced me into learning all of these things. And I know that you were in the financial world before and then quit your job to start this business. So can you explain to people a little bit more of what made you do this and where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. So I started my career as a trader on Wall Street. I was working in the equity space, trading industrials, materials, and energy stocks. And That was great for a time, but when I decided to leave, I went to the tech media world, and when I got there, all of my new colleagues basically said to me, hey, you came from Wall Street, like you're my friend now, you have to help me rebalance my 401k, you have to help me figure out which health insurance plan to pick, like are our company stock options worth anything, should I be buying them? And I got so many of the same question. I said, you know, listen, let me put this on the internet so you guys can all stop asking me and taking up my you know, time during the day. And as it turned out, I put my very first video on TikTok. It went viral and more than seven people needed my actual help and tips and tricks. And it wasn't just stuff that my colleagues needed. It was a lot of people on the internet. And I realized very quickly that we don't get this education in school. And that's pretty disappointing. Isn't that crazy? Because I was just looking at you, my kids are going into where they're going to do their A-levels now. And you have to choose between business and economics and maths for like art and maybe, Mm -hmm. I don't know, Latin, geography, whatever it is, you know, which is crazy to me because I kind of feel like we should all be doing business and economics both alongside each other. You know, why are we picking? Yeah, but here's the other thing. Even people who study business and economics in school and uni, they don't end up with that personal finance education. And I found that out pretty firsthand. So kind of an embarrassing story. But when I was first moving to New York, I was single, I was ready to mingle, I was going on a lot of dates. And because of my schedules, it was often most times easy for me to date other people in finance because I didn't have to explain why our date had to be at 5 p.m. so I could be at my desk at 5.45 in the morning the next morning. So I went on quite a few dates with other men who worked similar jobs to me, were certainly making much, much more money than I was, and I would find out that they had absolutely no financial literacy. They would be making a quarter of a million dollars a year and have credit card debt. And that baffled me because I didn't make close to that amount and I didn't. And 
I would ask them like, what are you buying? And it was things like the Rolexes and the Gucci loafers and the Hermes tie. And, you know, they, they were spending money like it was going out of style. And even though they were working with clients that had billions of dollars, they were smart, they were good at maths, they were good at business, they understood economics, they didn't understand personal finance and how it applied to their lives. I mean, that's actually a really good, I mean, I'm a housewife, so you'd have a field day with all of us because most of our wealth is in our wardrobes. So how do you apply personal wealth? Because, you know, I think a lot of people, there are so many mixed messages out there for people that credit card debt, I, I, I actually don't have credit card debt either. I think it's actually the worst. I got myself into credit card debt when I was much younger and then just cut them up. But what are your views? Because some people say that debt, good debt is good, like mortgages, bank loans for, for properties so that you can, you know, buy to let, things like that. Do you just, you think those are good investments rather than credit card debt? And why do you think credit card debt is so bad? Because a lot of people also, by the way, you know, they earn at different stages of the month. So sometimes they just use their credit cards to sort of tide them over. What's your view on all of that? Yeah, I don't love the language that we as like a general society use around debt because we'll say things like good debt and bad debt, yes. but debt is not morally positive or negative. It's just neutral. It's a tool. And just because you have credit card debt, it doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't make you stupid. Just because you have good debt doesn't suddenly make you wise and good with your money. That said, the reason I think credit card, rightfully so, gets a bad rap is because it is the scariest and growiest of debt. So typically, credit card annual percentage rates vary somewhere between 20 to 25%, which wow. is crazy. Those interest rates are high. That money, that money basically compounds. In the same way that your investments compound and grow for you, that debt can compound and grow against you. So when you're looking at a credit card with debt, likely on things that aren't assets, likely on things that you didn't need that aren't growing in value, it's not typically the wisest proposition. On the other hand, when you're able to get a mortgage rate and that mortgage rate is below 7% right now, they're right around there. It's you know quite high right now. But if you're able to get a lower interest rate on your mortgage, you are building equity in something that ultimately, eventually you could sell. So that is a very different type of use of your money because you're buying an asset versus something that would be just a, a want, something that's likely a liability. And I would say that when it comes to growing your wealth, historically, home ownership has been like the golden ticket to wealth generation for the middle class. So I think we view mortgages and credit card debt very differently. But again, I don't think debt is good or bad. It's a tool. I don't blame the single mom who needs to put groceries on her credit card, even if she can't afford to pay them off, you have to feed your kids. I get it. But also the way we talk about debt is so different for people who have money and who don't. With poor people, we say, you're in debt, shame on you. And we wag our fingers. Whereas for rich people who take on debt to build companies or buy homes and real estate, we call it leverage. And it's the exact same thing. It's borrowing money. But when it comes to people who have a lot of it, it's like debt has essentially gotten this facelift, this PR makeover, and it's spoken about so differently. And I think we need to stop doing that. It's a little bit of a double standard. 
So actually, essentially, you can apply the same rules, whether you have money or not, to growing your portfolio or to building a company. I think it's just we've scared people who maybe don't have the same money as a billionaire who takes on a lot of debt leverage, you know, and talked them out of it, whereas actually that could be a way out of their hole in the end. Correct. Yeah. I think, you know, we have to remember a lot of companies, a lot of the startups that we now use every single day that we know and love, like it it wasn't that someone was like, oh, I have a million dollars to pour into this. It was like, oh, let's go get debt. Let's go get money. Let's go get an investment from a venture capital group, from a very high net worth individual. They're taking on debt and it's just talked about so differently. So yes, I think the average person who may not have a lot of money that wants to start their own business, you know, considering taking on an investment, a little bit of debt from somebody is not the worst idea. Well, I think it's different too, because what we're saying is, you know, for somebody to go on and take debt when you're actually buying an asset, you know, we're yeah. not, you're not buying a handbag or a fast car unless it's a Correct. Bir- unless it's a Birkin, of course, and those are still going up people. But, you know, like even with, I mean, I'm on housewives, so we are, we have to dress a certain way, look a certain way. You know, I keep my, my wardrobe moving so the money keeps moving for me so it doesn't sort of sit dead or you can't get rid of it later or, you know, things like this. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely look at, I've invested in art, I've invested in land, you know, things like that. Can I ask you, you said you keep your wardrobe moving. What do you mean by that? Like you're constantly buying and then reselling things once yeah. they like, you know, yeah. you don't need them anymore? Yeah. So basically, you know, when I do a series of the show, right? I mean, not my staple stuff, you know, your classics, yeah. but like when you do a series of housewives and you do a tour or press or whatever, you know, obviously you, can, you can't wear them more than one, once right. or twice on Instagram. Right. And so I figured out a system that I just keep it going to people because, you know, invariably with the following like we all have, and I'm sure other people in content making have the same problems because everyone thinks that influencers and content creators get everything for free. We don't, especially not from big brands. That would be wonderful, but we don't. So you can like obviously the classics you keep, but all the other things that are fads or, you know, you you keep them moving. And even if you get like, you know, three quarters of what you bought it for. Or half of what you bought it for, at least it's not dying there and you can buy yeah. your new stuff. So that's how I keep my wardrobe moving for, you know, someone that's always on press tours or TV or magazine shoots, things like this, because it's a big expense and it is actually a business. Yeah, I absolutely love that you're doing that. I think many people assume people who have a lot of money don't go through the trouble when in fact, when you are well-to-do and you are money savvy, you have to be thinking of ways to make more of your money because to your point, like it's so expensive. Right now I'm on book tour and every single stop, I have to wear something different. Yeah. And it is crazy the amount of money that goes into actually looking good. And you know, I'll be honest, I'm very much a big sweater and leggings kind of gal, but it's expensive. It's certainly not cheap to outfit yourself and especially now with like the Instagramification of society, like you only can truly wear things once or twice because once you've been photographed in them, suddenly everybody's an outfit rememberer 
and they know exactly what you've worn. And it, it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't necessarily represent your brand well to be seen in the same thing so many times. No, I make money from the way I look and what I do on Instagram. But then, you know, again, I've got three kids now. I'm, you know, growing everything here with my, my new husband. And I've really taken decisions now where I'm thinking, you know, the car or should I buy two apartments? And that's not, you know, no yeah. joke. So now I'm looking, I was buying, going to, actually I put my name down and it's on hold for an amazing Bentley. And I'm telling you now, it'll be funny to see what comes out because I'm like a few days away from it. And I was, you know, I got it. I got the, you know, the loan here for it because here you you don't really, you can't get car loans. It does not like anywhere else. Dubai went sort of tits up a few years ago and everyone came here, borrowed way too much money and left their cars at the airport and Dubai went bankrupt. So they just don't give loans out anymore. So now I'm thinking instead of a car, to buy two apartments at to rent. Mm-hmm. Isn't that crazy? And then I, you know, take on the mortgages, rent them out. My tenants will pay the mortgages. And you're absolutely right. And then I have, you know, two income providing apartments that eventually I'll own in the next, you know, 20 years. And and that's it. I'm actually quite proud of myself. Whether I do it or not, by the way, remains to be seen. As I said, you'll all know on Instagram (laughs) very soon whether the Bentley turns up or the apartments do. But, you know, on the other hand, you know, getting a car to me, also a nice car, also is good for my business, right? It presents yourself well. I'm a big believer in, you know, looking the part when you do the job, like yourself, you know? Absolutely. And you know, I think you're thinking about the two apartments versus the Bentley is actually incredibly smart. Le- I will say transparently less so with, you know, the supercars, the ultra luxury cars, but for a traditional vehicle, if you buy a new car, you lose 10% as soon as you pull off the lot. Yeah. And that's not great. No. And then within the first year, that car will have lost 30% of its sticker value. And the big advice I say is like, if you want to buy a nice car, like buy one that is roughly three to five years old, that has very few miles on it. Because at that point, the car will have already depreciated the the most it will in a short period of time. So you are getting the most bang for your buck. And in your case, you know, buying a luxury car is a little bit different, but putting your money certainly into two apartments is going to be significantly more wealth generating than it would be to have an ultra luxury vehicle. So I love that you're thinking about that, whether or not you end up doing it. But I love that there's so much thought there because those two apartments could easily be something that, you know, end up funding parts of your lifestyle later on. Well, that's what I'm thinking is it go on, you know, like before, I think because I married a much younger husband, I think like that. And I think also for us, you know, I always think like in a way, to teach him as well, because, you know, Mm -hmm. he's never had to do these things. I used to be with a man that took care of all this stuff and, and knew all this stuff. And now I don't know any of it. Right. And I hadn't prepared for my, you know, old age and things like this. And I think it happens a lot to divorced women, by the way, who just Mm -hmm. sort of wake up one day and then suddenly not only are they not used to paying bills, they have a certain amount of money to live off. And they don't know what to do with it or how to provide for themselves long term. And I think it's a really, really important thing. And debt scares them, right? Because obviously their husbands and the way they've lived before, they've 
been taught that debt is is bad and how whether they can afford their mortgages and how to do all this. But actually, there are so many clever ways now to be able to afford property and get on the ladder. Yeah, absolutely. And you would not believe the number of DMs that I get saying things like, oh my gosh, you know, I just found out that my husband of 30 years was having an affair and now I don't know what to do. I have to leave. I don't think I have anything. Like I've been a stay-at-home parent. Like I get so many of those DMs and even on like a little bit of a, you know, more happily ever after note, there's a ton of people who are saying things like, hey, you know, I've been with my partner for 50 years or 40 years and they just passed away. And now I don't know what to do. And I, you know, I don't even know what the password to our bank account is. And I think that's why I so, so encourage, especially women, to be a part of your family's finances. It can't just be, oh, my partner's the breadwinner. I'm a stay-at-home mom. Because guess what? At some point, you may not be able to rely on that or bank on that, even if you are a stay-at-home mom, even if you aren't the actual person clicking the buttons, you should know exactly what your family's financial picture is. And that's going to make it so much easier if at any point, you know, God forbid something happens, your partner becomes incapacitated, you need to take, you know, control and make medical decisions for them. You at least understand what your financial situation is. And there's no way that like the wool can be pulled over your eyes. It's just really important for women to always have their own money. And I would say, you know, even if you are a stay-at-home parent, even if you are not someone who works outside of the home, have your own money, have your own bank account. Totally cool to have a yours, mine, and our situation, but make sure you have your own money. A lot of men won't do that or don't do that. And a lot of men don't let their wives into their financial lives or tell them, you know, how much money's in the bank. And, you know, I was married a long time. I never knew. I didn't ask. I was earning my own money. So it wasn't that important to me. But funnily enough, now, obviously, when you get divorced, it becomes a bit more important. And yeah. also, you know, I, I was thinking like for, for myself, as I said, I've taken control of my life. I'm really building everything now with my husband. What would you say is the best, like what, if you wanted to take a course to learn something, you know, as a woman that has never done this before, because I've hired accountants and I get sent even my VAT returns and things like this, but I don't even know how to read them, frankly. I actually don't know what I'm fucking reading. So <laughs> it could be anything. And you just go, thanks. And I think a lot of people, and as soon as I see numbers, they sort of fly off the page at me and I'm like, okay, I'm bored now. Or, you know, I give too much financial responsibility to the people around me to pay my bills and yeah. do my things because I've just never done it before. And I actually, that's such an important job that you, even if you have people to do it for you, you should know what you're looking at. So how can you get that knowledge? Like you said, nobody has personal finance knowledge. Does that come in a course? Like, how can I go learn that tomorrow? Yeah, you know, a little bit of a shameless plug here, but I did just write a book. It's called Rich AF, The Winning Money Mindset. That'll change your life. Mm -hmm. But if you just Google Rich AF, it should come up. And essentially, this is a step-by-step -step book that will, if you have no knowledge about finance, if you pick it up and read it from page one to the very last page, I hope you walk away feeling more confident, more capable, and ready to take on your financial journey. It covers everything from you know, making more money, asking for that raise, 
how to budget better, saving your money and what you're saving for. The investing chapter is the densest and longest part. There is a true, like, I hold your hand. We walk through it together. I explain exactly how to invest, even if you've never done it before. And the last chapter actually covers things like credit, credit scores. The US edition covers taxes. The UK edition covers having important money conversations, how that's going to impact your relationships. And it's totally tailored because I think for a really long time, like, you know, like we've been discussing, like this hasn't been taught in schools. And that's quite a shame because we learn things like math and reading and writing and science and social studies and history and all of that. And yes, that's important, but there are very few additional times in my life that I'm ever going to need to be able to calculate the angle of a triangle. There are very few instances in my life that I'm going to need to know that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. And I'm never going to play dodgeball in physical education ever again. But I would have liked to know how to balance a checkbook or even know what that means or file a tax return because the first year I did it, you know, I thought I was going to prison. And it would have been so nice to know how to make a healthy budget because when I first moved to New York, I was very much blinded by the glitz and glamour, spent all of my money on clothes, on tequila shots, as a young 22-year-old loves to do. But nobody gave me that education. And I'm hoping that that book, Rich AF, will give it to everybody else. Well, I mean, I'll definitely look at the book as well. But, you know, it's also like having exactly that. Like, how do I learn to fill in a tax return. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm reading everything at the moment, so I'm going to rush out and absolutely read that. I do believe everything's a mindset and, you know, we can change. It's a muscle, so we can change everything. And I'm absolutely, I just want to get into that place where I think that is the next thing on my list that I really, really need to learn more about because I do have so many businesses now in so many different places that in you know you need to be able to watch and have an overview even if you're not you know literally doing it exactly everybody's heard the song Rihanna bitch better have my money that was about her accountant essentially hustling her he was skimming money off the top and because she was this very big very busy star to your point it wasn't like she was paying her own bills. She had a team and people helping her do that. Somebody who was doing her bookkeeping and she would just kind of glance at it and be like, yeah, this is fine. Yeah, this is fine. Month after month after month until she ultimately realized she was like, wait, where's all of my money going? And when she went back and looked at it, she realized that the numbers weren't matching up. And so it is so critically important, even if you, and even frankly, even more so if you have a lot of money to be really mindful and watchful of it and know exactly where every single dollar is for context. Like I have a business manager who helps to physically pay my bills, pay my team, does, you know, my credit card bills, like pays them off every single time, every single month, my mortgage, everything like that. I am reading those statements line by line, baby. Like I do not want to see a single dollar out of place because even though someone else is clicking the buttons, I need to know what my finances look like. And it's so worth it to take the extra 30 minutes a month, 30 minutes every two weeks to do that. So if there was one course to start, what would it be? Like maths or like what a basic accounting course? I don't necessarily think it even needs to be a course. It's really just understanding your personal finances. I think for most of the people listening, they're probably full-time, you know, 
salaried employees that work for other people Mm -hmm. or other companies, reading your pay stub, I think is probably one of the most important parts. I can speak to the US in particular, like when you get a pay stub, it looks very long and there's a big old number at the top. And then there's all of these things that you have to pay into things like federal taxes, things like state taxes. If your state charges them local taxes, you have to pay for things like social security. You have to help pay into all the other things. Maybe you have a pre-tax retirement account that you're doing through your company. Maybe you have to have money taken out for the health insurance plan that you're paying for, yada, 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 depending on all the things that you have opted in for. And then suddenly at the very bottom, you've got a much smaller number that you're taking home than the number that you, in theory, made. And so I would say understanding your pay stub is probably one of the most important things that anybody can do. And fortunately, we all are not no longer living in you know the dark ages. We have the internet. It is so easy to just be able to Google like a walkthrough of a pay stub, no matter where you live, no matter where you're listening from, and understand line by line what each of those things is, why it's important that you are paying them, and what you ultimately end up with. What do you feel like a business manager does exactly? Because this is another thing that, you know, obviously being in the entertainment industry, I've been offered a lot of business managers. When do you think that's a good time to take someone on like that? Do you not have one already? No. I'm kind of surprised by that. No. Okay. Given that you have so many businesses that you're running, I would say a business manager could be really helpful. So my business manager handles pretty much anything in regards to my business that has a dollar sign in front of it. So not only do they handle any invoicing that I would you know, send to a brand for any sort of branded partnership or to my publisher for my book advance or you know, invoicing to the podcasting network that I work with, but they also receive invoices from makeup artists, from hair stylists, from, but also they send out the commissions to my agent, my management, my attorney. They pay my publicist bill every single month. They handle all of the accounting for all of that, as well as my personal. No, the accountants do that for us. Okay. So my business manager encompasses an accountant and a bookkeeper, as well as an account manager who helps with things like making sure that we are filing the right paperwork for, you know, my business structure. You know, I had to pivot out of having a LLC that was completed and filed in New York state to now having a Delaware Corp you know, these are all just conversations that you want to be having with like an attorney and your business manager to make sure that you're taking the most advantage you can of the current tax code. Also, I would say one thing that I really appreciate them doing is just essentially like optimization of my life. So they're the ones who were having conversations with us saying like, Hey, we're thinking of buying a car. And then for them to turn around and say, Hey, maybe you should consider an electric vehicle there are tax credits for that. Or maybe you should consider a vehicle over 6,000 pounds in curb weight. There is a tax deduction we can take on that. So they essentially just help me optimize my life a little bit, as well as doing all of the actual blocking and tackling of paying bills, sending invoices, making sure that my money is in the right place. And they also work to make sure that I have enough cash flow. I think ours is different because we don't have tax here. Oh, yes, that is very different. I forget. Oh, my God. I forget that you're in Dubai that, you know, obviously that is a very different scenario. But I would say that it's still probably valuable to do cash flow management Mm -hmm. with a business manager. So there are going to be some months where you have very, very high bills 
and some months that you don't. And then there are going to be some months where you receive a bunch of money for the work you've done and some months where you don't. Exactly. I mean, I think that's a very, very important one too, because I think, you know, with a lot of housewives and doing what we do, you get paid in lumps and tranches yes. yeah, and tranches and, and, and entertainment industry as a whole, you know, we work for four, four months or three months and then we don't work for the, the rest of the year. So, you know, it's absolutely learning if you've got mortgages or you've got car loans or you've got, you know, things, it's a great way to be, by the way, I love working for myself, but it means that, you know, you, it, things are sporadic. It means that you have to really plan for the year yeah. on the worst case scenario. And any, that's what I do. I budget on the worst case scenario and then anything else is a bonus. Absolutely. It's, it's similar to being, you know, like a teacher, right? We don't work the full year. You only generally get paid for a couple months and those couple months need to be able to pay your bills for the full 12. Mm -hmm. And I, I also say this about being a creator myself. Like I don't necessarily, I can't guarantee myself a 40 year career that I would get being an engineer, being a doctor, being a lawyer, being, you know, an accountant. We haven't even seen the full life cycle of what an influencer looks like. We haven't seen the full life cycle of a creator. And I compare the work we do similarly to that of an NFL player. You guys know what that is, right? Mm-hmm. Like football players. Yeah. You get five, maybe 10 good years. And if you get hit in the knee one time, hurt, you may never play again. And my thought is, is like, as an influencer, as a creator, you can really only bank on five to 10 good years. And you better make it rain when the sun is shining and that money needs to basically sustain you essentially over the same time period that someone with a traditional 40-year career would be able to sustain themselves. So you have to be especially good at budgeting, especially good at saving, and especially good at investing if you want to eventually retire and not have to work ever again. I mean, you know, it's so true. And I think that for me, I well, I just had a facelift, so I'm going to give myself <laughs> another 10 to 15 years. I think I can go on. And we're doing podcasting. So unless I get canceled for saying totally the wrong thing, I'm here for a while. <laughs> but, you know, the great thing about what we do, we can um, stay behind the camera, in front of the camera, because we've learned to do this as well. And we can do this for as long as... But I think, you know, in the meantime, I always say, build the business so that you don't rely on all of these. So that if everything's whipped away, I mean, housewives, I would say maybe five to 10 years, you know, like if I'm lucky. So I, if I whip that away, you know, you want to be able to have a very nice life and sustain yourself very comfortably. So that's the way I budget for young couples trying to get on the, you know, the property ladder. Now, obviously things have gone bananas. I mean, after Mm -hmm. COVID, especially interest rates, it it looks so hard for, for people to get into even the property market. And as you said, like I've learned over time, having invested in some stupid things and some great things, that, you know, property is the one thing that if you have no knowledge about anything, you can pretty much win on. But it's become so hard to get on that first rung now. What would you suggest for young couples that maybe are struggling to get out of their parents' house? Or I would say that you're right. It is harder. In particular, the stat really blew my mind when I heard about it. But in the U.S., it is now cheaper to rent than buy in 70% of all markets. 
So that feeling that home ownership is out of reach, that's not like, you know, in your head, that's very much legitimate. And I know that's also the case in the UK. I know that's also the case in many, many places across the world. And I would say for young couples, and I actually know quite a few couples right now doing this, is they take a step back to take a step forward. They'll actually move into their parents' home, into their basement, into, you know, their old childhood bedroom for a temporary period of time so that not only can they avoid paying rent, they can take that money and set it aside for a down payment. And oftentimes that's one of the only ways, which I find to be kind of tricky, right? Because what if you have parents where you can't move in with them or they don't have the space and you can't do that? It's hard. I'm not going to say that it's not hard. I would say taking a step back to take a step forward, being able to lean on other family members so that you can avoid paying rent and use that money to save up for a down payment is incredibly important. I would say asking for a raise every single year is going to be the easiest way to increase the amount of money you're able to set aside for that home. A lot of us focus on the scrimping and the saving, the not having the coffee every morning, the not eating the avocado toast, but it's very, very hard to cut out $10,000 worth of discretionary expenses. It's pretty easy to ask for a $10,000 raise. That's not unheard of. You can get that. And so it's good to try to maximize your income, make sure that you are being mindful with that spending. I don't think cutting out the little pleasures is going to be the difference between whether or not you can buy a home, but it certainly could be the difference between whether or not you're able to buy a new laptop at the end of the year. And maybe that new laptop lets you start a side hustle or a business that allows you to get to that home ownership place. So just being mindful with your spending, trying to maximize your income, and then be willing to swallow your pride and take a step back to take that step forward, I would say are probably the three tips to get on that first rung of home ownership. I think that's the same for anyone, really. You know, even if you're sort of coming out of a bad divorce or things like yeah. this, to try and get that. The most important thing is to try, come hell or high water, to get that down payment. How, I mean, over here you have to put, I think it's like 30% down. What is the down mm -hmm. payment in America today? The standard rule of thumb is roughly 20%. But another thing for especially first-time home buyers or young people who may be interested in, I would say, call it more unique living arrangements, you can actually put down less than 20%. FHA loans allow you to put down closer to, you know, three and a half percent or so. You can put down certainly less than 20%. And what makes that special is you won't need nearly as much money to get yourself started. You will have to pay some additional fees every single month but it could help get you into a certain location before you know, you're entirely priced out. There are also other options such as USDA loans, which if you want to buy land or in a more rural area, there's lots of options. You, you, know, you could do a conventional loan, but you know, conventional 97 is what they're called. You can put down 3%. So again, it is truly up to you to be unique and think about how you can get on that home ownership rung. And the down payment is somewhere where you can be really flexible as well as negotiating those closing costs. Sometimes it's not even the, you know, the monthly fee or the down payment you can't afford, but the closing costs are so high now, oftentimes that becomes an issue. And what you can do is a lot of the stuff that you get through your bank, you can actually negotiate to pay less and less.
I mean, and I just so you know, girls, I was talking to somebody the other day and she was like, oh, what am I going to do? I can't leave my husband because I'm in the house and I can't. He pays all the bills. And I said, well, exactly kind of this. I said, well, you've got a house. If I were you, I would move out of the house, rent out the house, rent a small apartment for you, rent your house, pay for your rent like that and live rent free off the house you own. Now you don't need your husband. And you know, it, like, no, but it's just, it was making it that simple to be able to make choices. It's taking control of your life. I think when we think about being rich and personal finance, people imagine, you know, what's what's his name? Duck McScrooge diving into a pool full of dollar bills or, you know, sitting on a golden toilet or all of these very, very lavish displays of wealth. And yeah, like, in cartoons, but in reality, finance and money is all about freedom. Having money isn't just to have it to spend it. It's to have it so that you can buy your way out of any situation or any sort of relationship that doesn't serve you. So that can be as silly as, oh, I just got a fresh blowout and it starts to rain. I'm able to call a taxi or call an Uber right away and my hair doesn't get messed up. I always say that the most expensive thing that you can ever buy is your freedom. Is your freedom. And, but on a really serious note, like if you are in an abusive relationship, if you are in a job where your manager, your boss doesn't respect you and treats you badly, like having money will give you the ability to leave. And I think that is the most worthwhile thing to spend your money on. Yeah, absolutely. It's priceless. Thank you so much for today. I think a lot of people will find that incredibly helpful. Please tell everybody where to find you. Remind us the book's name, where to get hold of you, if they want to find out more information. It's it's really, really such an important topic for everybody out there. And I myself am absolutely fascinated and running out to get that book. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody can find me across social media as Your Rich BFF. And my book is titled Rich AF, and you can get your own copy at richaf.me. There is both a U.S. domestic edition as well as an international one. Thank you for listening to another episode of Uncut and Uncensored with Caroline Stanbury. Thank you for listening. You can catch my new episode of my podcast every Wednesday. Please don't forget to follow so you don't miss any of the action. I want to hear from you, so leave me a rating and a review. Follow us on social for all the behind-scenes action and more information at Uncut and Uncensored by Caroline. See you next week.